Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage out of Luke, uh, but before that, I'd like to say a few things. Um, you know, there was once a, a wealthy man, he had an, uh, an artist uh, draw up his, his portrait, and um, afterwards, uh, he came, came around and looked at the portrait and said, that doesn't do me justice. And the artist said, justice? You need mercy. That is funny. Um, we, we all like the idea of, of wanting more justice in the world, but what I really want more is mercy. And when I think of God, sometimes in my head, uh, I think of God as some sort of Scrooge or a, a man with a monocle, you know, in the, like the Monopoly man, um, a miser counting out grains of rice, and, and having pity on me, and a, and a pity that's a, more of like a disdain, like, oh, really, again, Drew, come on, here's another grain of rice for you. But really, our God is, is full of love. Um, in this past week, I've been thinking about this hymn called The Love of God, uh, written by Frederick Lehman. And uh, the hymn goes, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints in angel song. And here this verse, this is actually the third verse that I'm going to end with. But uh, Frederick tells us that uh, he actually found it. It was uh, at an insane asylum, uh, one of the, the men uh, who was, was housed there had passed away, and as they were cleaning out his room, he found this verse here penciled on the wall. And it says, Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky." as a man with a profound insight into the love of God, a man uh, who wasn't in his right mind, but understood some things uh, in a way which I longed to grasp. And I'd just like to share a little bit about my own testimony. As a, as a kid, my, my parents brought me to church. I remember, um, I remember not wanting to go to church. Uh, I remember um, delaying as much as possible, getting dressed in the morning, uh, to the point of almost getting... Uh, in trouble. Uh, and then when, when we'd arrive at church, I'd do everything possible to talk my parents into letting me go to big people service, which is what this is here, so that I could, so that I could draw on the bulletin and play games with my brother. Uh, I didn't like going to Sunday school, but I remember one, every once in a while my parents won, uh, the, won the battle, and I ended up in Sunday school. This wasn't here, this was over on the west side of the state. And um, there's something just so profound about hearing the Word of God, even as somebody who wanted nothing to do with God. And I remember, you know, sitting on this series of steps, about me and a bunch of little kids, and they read this story. And this story, as I heard it, it, even as a kid, there was something about it that I knew this Jesus was different. There was something about this story that grabbed me in the heart, and 
and, and got my attention, and it's got my attention for the rest of my life. And it's in Luke chapter 10. I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Go ahead and stand with me if you would like and if you're able. We'll read verses 25 through 37. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw him, passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, uh, for your word to us, Lord, just given by your son, Lord, explaining to us, God, uh, your desire and your heart for mankind. Uh, we pray this morning that you would uh, open our ears to hear the things you have to say and on our hearts to receive the things you have for us, God. Uh, bless this time together, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. So, while you're sitting down, uh, the expert in the law here has said that uh, he came to, to Jesus with a question. He actually came to test Jesus, and he stood up to test Jesus. Now, as an expert in the law, it wasn't, he, he was a lawyer, but he wasn't just a lawyer in, in the civil sense. He was a lawyer in the sense of knowing the Mosaic law inside and out and the rabbinical law inside and out, an expert. He knew it forwards and backwards. And he actually stood up as, as people were gathered together uh, with Jesus. They were apparently all sitting down, and this man stood up to test Jesus with a question. And, and the word test here means to test thoroughly, it's more than was necessary beyond any appropriate measure or reasonable limits. It's the type of questioning, the type of testing where everybody in the room stops talking and they turn and lean back and say, whoa, <laughs> something's going to happen and everybody's quiet. What's going to happen here? And he comes with this question, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this was an important question, and it's an, it was an important question of the time. It was thing, something often discussed amongst the experts in the law and, and the rabbis of the day, and it's an important question for us today, right? What must I do 
to inherit eternal life. We know that this life is short, this life is fleeting. We want to know more certainly about the life to come. Is there anything beyond it? Uh, this was a question put to Jesus by an expert in the law about the law. What does God have to say about this? And he didn't want to know. He, he kind of already knew. But also, sometimes with people who are uh, caught up in, in, in the law, caught up in trying to keep the rules, the, often the real question is what, not what must I do, but what is the least I have to do? What is the least that I have to do to earn eternal life? What is the minimum acceptable standard for entrance into paradise? I'm, I don't know if any of you guys remember going back to school and you, you had your different teachers pegged. You're like, I know what this teacher wants. If I do this and just get this much, then I can pass the class. Was that just me? <laughs> okay, okay. Um, and so that, some of us come to life, some of us come to God with that sort of attitude. What is the least, can I get God pegged? What is the least I can do to get by and get eternal life? And Jesus responds to this man by asking some questions himself. You're an expert in the law, right? He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And actually, that's two separate questions. The first question is, what does the law, what are the words? Tell me what the law, what is written in the law? What does it say? The second question is, what, what do the words actually mean? What is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read it? How do you interpret the law? How do you derive, what is the meaning that you are deriving from it? Two separate things. And the expert in the law answers the first question by quoting two separate passages. Out of Deuteronomy 6.5, he quotes, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind. And then Leviticus 19.18 says to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a profound and true interpretation of the law. It's, it's a profound thing to, to look at all that is written in those five books uh, and, and to, to sum it all up together here, to say the love of the Lord you God with all your heart, soul, strength, and the love of your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, on another occasion, uh, answered in a similar fashion, this same way. And so Jesus tells him, you've answered correctly. This lawyer, this expert in the law, has correctly understood the law. He says, do this, and you will live. Carry it out, and you will be living. You will be alive. You will be in possession of eternal life. But the expert in the law makes two kind of two big mistakes just by his next statement. And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? He wanted, it says he wanted to justify himself. You see, he was living in such a way as w in which he was defining for himself who his neighbor was Maybe it was people from his own tribe. Maybe it was people from his own family. He was taking care of his own and people who fell outside of that circle. Tough luck, you got your own family. Tough luck, you got your own people. Um, they should be able to take care of you. So who is, who is my neighbor? But number one, he short circuits the first command by assuming he's already done it, right? He says, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, strength, mind, love your neighbor as yourself. And he wants to justify himself only on the second part there, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, who can really claim to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, 
all your soul, all your strength, all the time. I mean, perhaps in a moment of worship, perhaps in a moment of charity, perhaps in a moment of kindness, we display with our, with our being uh, godliness, but consistently at all times. I mean, if this is the condition for gaining eternal life, ought to close up shop. <laughs> I'm already done, right? I'm already done. There isn't a one of us, a single one of us, who could carry out this command at all the time, and yet this man assumes that he's already done the first one. Wow. Okay. And his second mistake is he assumes that these two commands uh, are separate. He's done the first one, and the second one he's not so sure about, right? Like, I've, I've done the love of God thing over here, like the love of God if it were like my son has Legos, and so I've built the, the, the love of God Lego, and it's really good over here. But the love of neighbor Lego, I'm not so sure about. I lost the instruction manual. Um, uh, and then I'll, I'll work on this, and I'll kind of go back and forth between the two to make sure they're well-balanced. But this isn't the idea. If 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? In this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Who is my neighbor? Here, Jesus shows the man that his previous answer, though correct, was incomplete. The expert in the law failed to provide the correct meaning. And Jesus uh, uses a story here to develop for us crystal clear image of what it means to be a neighbor. Jesus explains to the expert in the law how Jesus reads the law. Keep in mind, Jesus claims divinity. He's the Son of God, the Son of Man and the Son of God, fully man and fully God. He is God in his very nature. Philippians 2 tells us Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. So Jesus is explaining the meaning, the heart behind the law, not from the perspective of an expert in the law, not from the perspective of an outside critic or commentator, um, not through, through us who we, we think something is true and then we find out later that it's not true and we have to shift our, our thoughts on something. But Jesus is explaining the law through the admission of author. Jesus takes uh, what we've developed in our theology and what we think is true, our abstract thinking, and he lays it out in undeniable simplicity. And so he tells it this way. A man was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. The road. Uh, the Jerusalem road uh, was a danger, dangerous road, um, but it also uh, was uh, a, a road that was, was steep. I, I got a picture up here I, I want us to take a look at. Uh, Jerusalem's 2,000 feet above uh, sea level. I thought this was really good uh, for just giving us a, a grasp of, of this area. Jerusalem, 2,000 feet above sea level. Jericho, 1,000 feet below sea level, so you got about a 3,000-foot drop in less than 20 miles of travel. So we're looking at, if it was a straight grade, like a 3% grade the whole way, but we know there's going to be ups and downs and real steep parts. Um, and so uh, we've got Jerusalem here, Jericho uh, is in the Valley of the Dead Sea south there. 
uh, Capernaum up north where Jesus did much of his ministry. Moving on to the second uh, picture, the second slide I have here, uh, there's a picture there of some travelers on this very road uh, in the early 19th century. early 20th century. Uh, The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous uh, with all sorts of rocky defiles and quick turns. It was happy hunting for highway robbers. Actually, uh, in Jesus' day and even up to the 5th century, uh, Jerome, uh, they referred to it as the Red Way or the Bloody Way. Um, Even up to the turn of the 20th century, it was necessary to pay a price to the sheiks of the area uh, for protection on this road. Uh, so Jesus is speaking of, of a real danger, a real place, real situations that people found themselves in. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a real road, uh, and it was notoriously dangerous. So it's a similar, like if, if I were to say um, truck driver in the dead of winter was taking a shortcut through Big, Bigelow Gulch, and you guys here would be like, I, I kind of know where the story is going, right? He's going to get in a car accident. Um, so in the same way, Jesus, as he's talking about man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, attacked by robbers, are like, yeah, I, I get that. That happens. Um, and, and this man, all indications show that this man uh, was alone, traveling alone. And that, that's a huge risk, especially on a road that's notorious, a, a road that's called the Bloody Way. This man traveling by himself, uh, apparently has no weapon, no protection, out there, sitting duck. Nobody likes to be alone in a dangerous place. That's why we say there's strength in numbers, why the Lord says two are better than one because they have a good return on their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. We don't know why he was alone. Perhaps he was on business, it was urgent and needed to get the deal done. Perhaps there was an urgent family issue. Uh, Maybe he just was alone all the time. We don't really know why he was alone, but we know that he gambled with his life on this road and lost the wager. And so we have this question here also that, that this passage brings up is, how do we respond to people or even ourselves when a foolish a seemingly foolish risk brings destruction. I mean, do we have any obligation to people who've brought it upon themselves? This man shouldn't have been traveling alone. He was traveling alone. He knew it was a notoriously dangerous road, and he got caught, right? He got, he got caught by these robbers, um, and they beat him. Do, if, if somebody does this in our lives, if somebody makes a foolish investment, uh, if somebody hurts themselves, if somebody uh, gets involved in uh, a, a bad business enterprise, uh, if somebody uh, starts abusing uh, different substances, do we have any obligation to them? They brought it upon themselves. Well, we move from the victim to the robber. Uh, they attacked him. They attacked him. It says they did three different things with him. They, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and then they left him for dead. Uh, for us, uh, clothes are cheap. We can hit up H&M, get a $5 stonewashed t-shirt. Um, I like stonewashed t-shirts. I'm wearing a white shirt today, but uh, my preference is the stonewashed t-shirts. Um, but I, I mean, we fill up our closets, our dressers, busting at the seams with clothes. Uh, every few months, we got to, you know, make a run to the thrift store just to keep our sanity, right? Um, or every, every once in a while, I go through my stuff and my shirts are gone. It's like, my favorite shirt's gone. And my wife's like, it has like eight holes in it. You're done. You're done. It's gone. And she always does it when I'm not looking, too. It's so sneaky. 
Um, uh, you've probably experienced being somewhere with inadequate clothing, uh, whether it's in the dead of winter and it's uh, and you're you're just too cold, uh, whether you're uh, outside and you got too much clothes on when it's too hot out. Uh, I remember one time. Uh, traveling. I'd just gotten out of college. Uh, I went to school in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I was living here working in the summer, and one of my friends was getting married. And so I was like, I'm going to go on a weekend trip, uh, just three days. I'm going to be gone three days. And so I'm just going to pack real light. I don't, it's dead of summer, so I don't need anything warm. And so uh, I, I get, I, I'm flying over there, and I had a connection in Chicago, and uh, there was bad weather, there were storms down, uh, down in St. Louis, so my plane from Chicago to Michigan was canceled. So I was stuck at the airport overnight, and I was out of college, so I didn't have any money, so I didn't want to spare what little money I had to get a hotel. And the AC was so cold. <laughs> it was so cold in that airport. And I was trying to use my, I don't know if you've been in a situation where you try to use your uh, backpack as a blanket on top of you. It doesn't work very good, okay? So I basically waited until about three or four in the morning when Starbucks opened. But I was just, I was just, I was so cold. I was upset. I was like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm always going to travel with the hoodie. I go there for one, one more night. On my way back, I get stuck in the same airport. This time it was my fault, though. I, I had looked at a screen and it said that your flight is at this gate. But I looked at the some other company's screen, and they had the wrong information up, so I went to the wrong gate and sat there for like an hour or two. I was like, man, they haven't said anything about my plane yet, but I was reading a book. And then I get up, and my plane's already gone, and I'm like, oh, sorry, you have to fly on another day. And I was like, I'm stuck in the same airport two out of three days? Come on. Now, I never travel without a hoodie, okay? Um, but this man, he didn't forget anything, right? He was stripped. It was taken from him. He was stripped naked, humiliating, exposed for the world to see, nothing left to his name, facing all the extremities of nature, blistering heat in the day, chills in the evening, all on a public road, people coming and going, people driving right by. It's crazy to think how frail we are. A fire, a disease, a thief can steal everything in a moment. Uh, you know, you're driving out in the country and in the winter and, you know, you, your car dies and then you're stuck on the side of the road and you don't have your emergency provisions and the snow drift is, is coming and your car's getting piled up and you lose cell service, like that. You know, zero to hero and then there's hero to zero, I guess. We're, f- we're frightfully frail people. And this man is an example here. And he wasn't just stripped naked, but he was beaten. The robbers went one step further. They beat him. He was pummeled senseless to the point where he could neither fight back nor run for aid. He couldn't call for help. He couldn't recognize the villains to the point that passersby uh, would have had the vigilante scared out of them, right? Uh, Where people who were usually for justice could see this man and just keep on going by. Left for dead. It's interesting. It's interesting to me that Christ said that the enemy of our souls, Satan, has come to, to steal and to destroy and to kill. Just like in this story, stripped, beaten, left for dead. Think back even in the garden, you know, the serpent, Satan came. He deceived, he revealed uh, the shamefulness of Adam and Eve and their nakedness. 
He walked them into a curse, and he left them to die in their sins. And then he was gone. <laughs> well, where's the serpent, right? And it was God who had to come looking for his two children. And he picked up the pieces, he clothed their nakedness, and he made a solution, a way for them to gain life. It was the, the robber came in and stole, and somebody else had to come in and fix it. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and we saw, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A priest and the Levites here, people who are justifying themselves. Uh, Jericho was a town designated uh, for the Levites to live. It was about, there was, at the time, uh, there was recorded probably about 12,000 uh, priests and Levites who lived in Jericho at the time of Jesus. And they had monthly rotations of work at the temple in Jerusalem. So this path from Jerusalem to Jericho was well-traveled by the priests and Levites, making their way from uh, Jericho to the temple and back. So this not only was the situation real, very real from the dynamic of the robber uh, victim, but also from the Levite priest traveling upon the road. This was a normal occurrence. Uh, and the, the Levites and the priests are different, so just a little bit of information here. The Levites, the, the tribe of Levi was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were designated to this uh, special work about the temple, singing, playing music, serving as guards, carrying items around, upkeep of the facilities, and even teaching the law. So I think it's interesting that we have an expert in the law here uh, who's questioning Jesus. I wonder sometimes if this man himself were a Levite, if this man himself had traveled the road, if this man himself had actually perhaps even been the one who had done this. I don't know. Uh, and then the, the priests, though, were a narrower subset of the Levites. So the Levites, the tribe, uh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and then um, within the Levites were the priests, the sons of Aaron. Uh, and they carried out the function of the most holy work in the temple, the sacrifices on the altar, that is the blood offerings of the animals, the burnt offerings. The, uh, the priests also blessed the people. And so you have these Levites, these priests, these, these privileged people who uh, regularly traveled this road, but it makes sense for a couple different reasons why both the Levites and the priests passed by. And, and at the top of the list is the risk of becoming unclean. So you think they're, every, if they're, going, they're going to their work on their monthly rotation to work in the temple. They're only going to be there for a month. And to risk becoming unclean by touching somebody who's half dead, what if they are already dead? You come up and you touch them, you become unclean, then you can't, you can't go to work, right? Or maybe you're on your way home and you hadn't seen your family for a month and to risk becoming unclean and then having to be separate from your family for another week, there's a risk there. They didn't want to take it. But there's also the risk of you come upon this man along the road and if he had just been beaten by robbers right here, where are they, <laughs> right? They could just be right around that corner. They could just still be here. Maybe, and, and this, was tip, this was also typical, where the robbers along this road would use people as bait to catch more people. So the other day, I went fishing out at Waits Lake with my brothers, and we caught a fish, and then it was so small, we used that fish to catch other fish, right? And the fish actually just ate it, and then we took it, and then we didn't catch any other fish that day. But... 
This is what they would do. They would take, the, they would take people and use them as bait along the highway. Or uh, there's, there's all sorts of, of reasons why you could justify yourself uh, as a Levite or as a priest passing by. You could think to yourself, you know what, I'm going to serve the Lord at the temple. I'm, I have a more important work to do. So maybe somebody else will come along and take care of this guy. I can't do it right now. Um, or I got to get home. I'm on urgent business. There's, I got a family celebration. I'm, I'm really busy. I can't really help this guy right now. Um, or you can think to yourself, you know what? I'm not a doctor. I don't know what I can do to help this guy here. He's on the side of the road. It looks like he's in real bad shape. And my donkey only has room uh, for my stuff on it right now. And if I got all my stuff off the donkey, I don't know what I would do with it. Or perhaps you thought to yourself, man, this guy was traveling on this road by himself. Why is he on the road by himself? He brought it upon himself. He should, he should have calculated the risk. He should have thought through better. You know, yeah, he better take care of himself here. Or he's, he's already half dead. He's probably going to end up dying anyways, so just leave him here. Or, well, you know, I'm passing by. I'll say a prayer for him as I'm passing by, and maybe God will take care of him some other way. Or maybe the, I already helped somebody earlier this week, so I've already filled my quota. I don't know. Spurgeon once said, I, I never knew a man refuse to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. So I have to think, you know, what's, what's my go-to excuse when I see somebody in need, when I see somebody who needs some help? What, what is my go-to excuse? What is your go-to excuse? I think it's tragic that though the priest and the Levite were supposed to be people who were close to God and represented God, to the Israelites and to the world, and they, they, they worked in proximity to the temple of God where His glory was, yet here they were so far in behavior from the actual heart of God. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This was an unexpected turn in the story as Jesus was, was telling it. Likely at this point, his listeners were expecting uh, some sort of anti-establishment pitch by having an everyday Jew come and save the day. So the Levite passed by, the priest passed by, but a Jew, just a good, you know, a man of the soil, hard-working farming Jew came and saw the man and took care of him. You know, a hero from our very people. Now, Jesus didn't, didn't preface the story by saying, and now let me tell you the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan. He, he didn't preface it. He would have scandalized his audience from the start. Uh, he waited a bit into the story before bringing out the, the big guns, before bringing out the turn. And everything up to this point is understandable, uh, Jesus throws in a wrench, a Samaritan hero. And we say, so what? Samaritan hero, what is that all about? Well, the Samaritans and Jews did not associate with one another. The Samaritans were a sort of half-breed, considered by the Jews to be impure in their bloodline, a people of ancient mixings. When the northern kingdom of Israel uh, was conquered and deported, they brought in uh, foreigners from Assyria and other parts of the world, uh, and they intermixed with the Israelites, the remaining Israelites there. So they're a people of impure bloodline, but also a people impure in their worship. 
They had a rival altar. They actually had a rival temple on Mount Gerizim in contest with the pure temple of God in Jerusalem. And while this and meanwhile, the Samaritans considered themselves to be the pure party. They regarded only the, the Pentateuch, or the first five books uh, written by Moses, to be Scripture. They didn't regard the rest of the Old Testament as Scripture. Uh, and they harbored a, a bitterness at having their temple destroyed by the Hasmonean Jews, uh, the priest king John Hyrcanus, uh, about 138 years earlier. So, uh, and just a few, actually just a few chapters earlier here in Luke's account, the Samaritans had refused to give lodging to Jesus and his disciples as they traveled through the area. James, the disciples, James and John, the sons of thunder, said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on, on these Samaritans? And Jesus rebuked them. Uh, some rabbis even taught that uh, a Jew was forbidden to help a Gentile woman who was in distress giving birth because if they succeeded, all they did was to help one more Gentile come into the world, and the Samaritans were the worst sort of Gentile. There was even a Jewish prayer that ended by saying, and do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Wow. Um, so the listeners had expected maybe an everyday Jew to be the hero of the story, but then when Jesus said, but a Samaritan, as he came along, perhaps they were thinking, okay, now the true villain has arrived in the story. We know that a Samaritan would just finish him off. But Jesus took them up. The Samaritan here would be the hero. And then when the Samaritan saw him, he took pity on him. And this was his, this was his driving motivation for the Samaritan. Pity, compassion, mercy. And it's not a pity like a disdain or a contempt sort of pity, like, oh, pity that person. Oh, wow, really? This guy is hurting on the side of the road. I guess I'll have to take care of him. Oh, look at him in his miserable state. Jeez. Okay, come on. No. He's not doing it for show. He's not doing it to make his mama proud. He's not doing it because he has nothing better to do. He's not doing it even because it's the right thing to do. His motive is mercy. Mercy has in view misery and its relief. Goodness exercised towards the wretched and guilty. Compassion towards the miserable. I think for me and for, for us, one of the hardest things to grasp is that God's attitude towards me is mercy. He, when he thinks of me, when he thinks of you, he's not like, oh, really, again, Drew, you did that? <sighs> All right, come on. He's not embarrassed. Oh, man, my kid. Oh, again. He doesn't look at me in contempt or disgust. He doesn't look at me in disappointment or just, you know, I've had it up to here, Drew. Just one, this will be the last one. Here's the line. Here's the red line, Drew. You do this one more time, you're done, okay? You won't be my kid anymore. But his attitudes towards me is mercy. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And as God shows us this great mercy, as we receive this great mercy from God, man is in turn expected, because that mercy from God is supposed to change us, man's expected to give mercy in return. As the Lord said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy 
be merciful even as your Father is merciful, or those who water or refresh others will themselves be watered or refreshed. I mean, there's, there's problems in this world that I have that, that have happened to me, and problems that, have, that I've made for myself, but in either case, whether it just happens to me or that I've created it, our God wants us to experience His mercy in the midst of miserable circumstances. I think it's interesting, too. So the Samaritan man, as he's coming along, just as, as a sort of side note, the Samaritan had things. The Samaritan owned bandages. He owned oil, wine. He owned a donkey. He had money. Even as he shows up at the inn, um, he pays, what, the two denarii, which is enough to feed the man for about a month, 24 days. Uh, he shows up at the inn. He's got good credit. <laughs> he says, you know, whatever, uh, I'm going to leave this man with you, and whatever else I owe you at the end of the day, um, I'll, I'll come back and pay for it. And the innkeeper trusted him. He owned all these things, but, it wasn't, but he was willing to give up these things, right, to help a man in desperate need. He owned the things, the things didn't own him. And I, so I have to think back to, you know, what is, I, I, I accumulate things, and why am I accumulating things? Is it for my own pleasure? Uh, we're told even in James, as we're studying James uh, on Sunday, that you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives that you might spend what you get on yourself. Am I willing, am I eager to show mercy to people? Am Am I available to use the goods I have to bless other people? Jesus ends here saying, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And you can be an expert in the law and know it forwards and backwards and know all the different interpretations on the law, but here the answer is so plain, so obvious, a child knows. Which of the three do you think was a neighbor? the man who fell into the hands of robbers. I think it's interesting, too, that the expert in the law here couldn't even say the Samaritan. (laughs) He just said the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Uh, Our God is a merciful God. He sees us in our sufferings and our misery. Um, I think of uh, Annie J. Flint, who wrote the hymn, He Giveth More Grace, and as a woman who went through uh, terrible suffering uh, herself, personally, physically, she, she wrote this, and it just speaks to the mercy and the love of God. And this hymn goes, He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we've exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I think of the part where he says, uh, where she says here that uh, when our strength has failed, 
And that's really what happened to the man on the road when it says he was half dead. It means he had no strength left. He couldn't even speak. He addeth his mercy. He giveth and giveth and giveth again. It's, it's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful reality. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? What do I have to do? To, li- to live like the Good Samaritan, for some of us in our current state, feels impossible. When we ask, what do, what do I have to do? And the, the life that's lived out and laid out here as the Samaritan man, I feel like, there's, is there any way that I can drum up this kind of lifestyle? It's, it's foreign to me. It's foreign to me and my nature. But I think we can do three different things. We can receive God's mercy. We can recall God's mercy. And we can relive God's mercy. To know that God desires to lavish his love upon us as his children. He wants us to receive his compassion, his mercy. He doesn't look at us in disdain or contempt. He longs to to heal us, those of us who are broken, which is all of us. He longs to heal us, to bandage our wounds, to to pour on wine, which is to disinfect and clean, and, and oil to soothe and to take us himself and to care for us. And that he paid the price on the cross. Jesus paid the price for that too. And the promise that he will come back and, and restore all things for us. God wants us to receive his mercy. And then he wants us to recall his mercy, to, to live in a continual state of remembering what God has done for us, what he's done in the past, what he did yesterday or the week before, what he did on the cross through his son Jesus, what he's doing even right now. And then he wants us to relive his mercy by acting in kind, to live out his mercy. Do this and you will live. To, to be living God's mercy towards other people, allowing God to be merciful through us to other people is when we are truly alive. We don't want to be dead men walking. We want to be men who have been made alive by the Spirit of God living out God's mercy among this world. That's why I think it's wonderful that we do things like the Feed the Youth program. So um, that's our, my encouragement for us today, just to, be, to allow ourselves to be transformed by hearing God's heart of mercy, that God wants to be merciful towards us, and we, He wants us to embrace Him and embrace His mercy. I think it's interesting here, he talks about what must I do to inherit eternal life, and uh, inheritances are something, are things that are passed down, right? They're passed down from, from father to child, father to son. So the way we inherit eternal life is to become a child of the giver of life, right? The most high God, the one who possesses life. So when we believe in Jesus, we're born again into the family of God through the power of his spirit. And when we become a child of God, the father takes us through a process of transformation where we develop into sonship. My children take on my appearance. They do genetically just by being born of me. They do it by just being around me through proximity, but they also do it through discipline. I help, and I help to change and inform them as best I can. Uh, in the same way, as we're born again by God, we take on his, his genetics. We take on his heart, and we spend time around Jesus, we abide in him in proximity. And then we allow our Father to discipline us and show us and train us in His ways. When we inherit eternal life from God, 
that life becomes active and transformative and mercy and compassion flows from us as God is working in us and through us. And this started with God first. Jesus is the true Good Samaritan. He finds mankind beaten by the curse, shamed by sin, left for dead in sin and transgression. And he comes with healing and restores us to himself, pays the price, removes our shame, clothes us, heals us, promises his return. It's a wonderful promise from God. And then he says, go and do likewise. But the, the do there is a, is a continual. It's a keep on doing. Go and keep on doing. Go and keep on doing. So embrace the Father's mercy as his will for your life. Go and do likewise. Well, that's what I had to say this morning out of the Good Samaritan. We're going to uh, take communion together. Uh, the, uh, the body that was broken for us, uh, the blood that was shed for us on the cross by Jesus, uh, a remembrance, a memorial uh, of what he's done for us. Um, and so I'll, I'll pray. If, if you need uh, to, to come down and, and pray with somebody, I'll be down for prayer. There'll be people on the wings. If you, if you feel like, I, I want to experience God's mercy. I've never experienced his mercy before, or I need to show mercy, but I don't have the strength, and you'd like to pray with somebody, I would invite you to do that. But let's pray together as a church first. So, Father in heaven, God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that when you look upon us, you look as a, child, a father upon his children. Uh, you look as, as somebody who longs to show us mercy. Uh, you look as, as someone who doesn't disdain us or show contempt for us, God, but you care deeply. We thank you, God, uh, that this is who you are, Lord. And we pray, God, that, that you would in, empower us, Lord, and strengthen us, God, not to, to make excuses when we see those who are in need of being pulled out of misery, God, uh, even those people who have brought it upon themselves, Lord, but that you would use us, Lord, uh, as agents of mercy and compassion in this world, Lord, just as you did, just as you started with your son Jesus, Lord, this work. Carry it on through us and in us, God. Make us like you. Make us look like you, God, more and more, Lord. Uh, we just invite you to do this in our lives. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.